If you have your Bibles, I invite you to uh, take it and turn to Luke chapter 2, is where we'll be studying this morning. Luke chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 22. It's a lot of twos. 2.22. Luke 2, verse 22. For those of you who uh, don't know me, if you're visiting, um, or you just don't know who I am, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at First Alliance Church. It's really just a fancy way of saying I hang out with teenagers uh, all week, which is, some of you, you would think that's the worst job in the world, but I love it, and it's a privilege of mine. Um, if you don't know, my wife and I just had a baby this past November, uh, November 22nd, uh, a little baby boy. His name is Jacob, um, and, and it's fun. And it's, it was fun this week as I was studying this passage because uh, we're still talking about Jesus as a baby, uh, but Jesus is 40 days old in this passage, and to my count, my son is 37 days old. And so it, I could relate to Mary and Joseph. I could kind of step in their shoes a little bit and understand what it's like to have a one-month-old. Um, I, I understand how much uh, a one-month-old cries. I understand how much a, a one-year-old eats, which is a lot because he's my son. Um, I understand how much... Th- how often a diaper needs to be changed, which is more than you would ever imagine. Um, one of my favorite things to do as, uh, as a father with our infant is actually to take him out in public because I love just the side comments that we hear from, from random strangers talking about our baby. Um, and it's a blessing, and, and I love it, and I just you can tell I'm a very proud father. Um, but one of my favorite and most memorable stories, though, of a, a random occurrence that we've had with a stranger was Sarah. Uh, it was actually with Ella, who is our two-and-a-half-year-old. She'll be three in March. Um, when she was an infant, uh, Sarah had gone out grocery shopping and had her in the car seat. And she was standing in line, and this big, giant, burly man steps into line uh, behind her and this guy this guy was like intimidating he probably had like tattoos all up and down his sleeves this is probably not the kind of guy that you would want to run into in a dark alley and he in his grim face and grisly look peers into the car seat and says oh what a cute little baby so sweet and it's the last thing that you would imagine coming from this guy if you have a child yourself, you might have had similar experiences in public. Uh, well, today tells the extraordinary story of Mary and Joseph and their what seems to be a random um, meeting with a, with a complete stranger that they didn't know. Um, and so, once again, we'll begin in verse 22 in Luke chapter 2. It says this, When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed... Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was custom of the law, uh, of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now may dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at this, at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray now as we open your word that it would come alive to us. I pray, Father, as we study, that it would be diligent and effective. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. So to set the scene, once again, this takes place 40 days after Jesus was born. And we know this because of why they went to the temple. You might be thinking, you know, did they just take a random day trip? No, they actually went, and it lists two reasons. Uh, The first one was for the purification of Mary. Uh, this is really fun because you can look back, uh, I think it's fun, you can look back to the Old Testament um, and see that they're following the law that Moses had written out that God had revealed to him. And so if you look in Leviticus 12, you will actually find what needed to happen after a woman gave birth to a child. And in that uh, culture, in Israel, they would actually say that you would become unclean. You would become unclean, and so you would actually have to offer a sacrifice after um, 40 days to be made clean. So she would be, um, she would have the baby, and then she would be um, ceremonially unclean for seven days, and then there there would be like a 33-day waiting period uh, of purification, they called it, and then she would have to go to a priest to uh, offer a sacrifice and make herself clean. This sounds really foreign to us because we don't really, we don't have to follow um, the law in, in that way anymore. Um, and when we talk about people being unclean, when I call someone unclean, it's generally me talking to a sixth grade guy because he smells and he needs to take a shower, right? That's what our culture is like. If we're unclean, we fix it by taking a bath. Um, but the term unclean in the Old Testament, it carried much more um, spiritual ramifications, so to speak. It was initiated by physical contact. There were certain things that if you touched them, you would become unclean, and there would be a ritual that you would have to go through in order to be made clean. Okay? Um, if, you gave, if you've ever given birth to a child or have witnessed giving birth to a child, you, you understand that the things get messy, and we'll just leave it at that. Um, and so you have to, in their eyes, you would have to be made clean. Um, and until you were made clean, you actually really couldn't touch anything holy. You couldn't even enter into a sanctuary. So there were even um, social ramifications about being unclean. And this is how they made themselves clean. And so through delivering a baby, Mary uh, became unclean, and she had to go to the temple to be purified according to what it says in Leviticus 12, after 40 days. 
The second reason they went was to dedicate Jesus to the Lord. You can see quotes in your Bible, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. That comes straight from Exodus 13, verse 2, that you can look at in your own time. But essentially it's saying that every firstborn male in Israel was to be consecrated or set apart for God or for God's work, essentially. And so uh, the reason I explain this is, to you, is so you, you can understand why they were going to the temple. Um, it wasn't, once again, on a whim. Um, it was something that God had placed uh, since, you know, hundreds of years before them. Um, and it's also to say that they were just, they were very good, normal Jewish folk. Mary and Joseph were good Jewish folk who followed the rules. They weren't rebellious. Um, they were normal. They were normal. And so they made the trek, um, they traveled, it was about six miles, five to six miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, uh, to the temple, and so it's an easy one-day trip. Uh, and then a peculiar character enters the story, and his name is Simeon. And we're given a, a little bit of a background of Simeon, but not much, not much. By all accounts, um, Simeon is a simple layman. He's your normal run-of-the-mill guy. There's really no indication that he's a priest. There's only three things that, uh, that, that we know of him. You know, it doesn't mention his vocation. It doesn't mention his social status. It doesn't mention um, even his age. We can assume that he was older based on what he says later. Um, but we just don't know much about the guy. He was a normal guy. And once again, Scripture only mentions three things about him. He was righteous, he was devout, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Righteous, devout, and the Holy Spirit was on him. He was in tune with the Holy Spirit. He like hung out with the Holy Spirit. Um, And those are the only three things that we know about Simeon in all of scriptures. And so it interests me that of all the things, of all the things that Luke, the writer of this gospel, could have used to describe Simeon, he chose to, wrote about, to write about his spiritual condition. He chose to write about his spiritual condition. I hope someday when I am dead and long gone, people will look back and say, that Mike Kazarowski, he was righteous and devout. And he, he, the Holy Spirit was on him. Boy, if that is what people said about me when I was done and gone, I, I would be more than thrilled. He was righteous and devout and the Holy Spirit was on him. Because honestly, we have these, we have, um, we have celebrity pastors and we have these celebrity preachers that have had an immense impact on thousands, if not millions of people. And, And I'm thankful for that. And we're glad that God has used them in that way. But if we're completely honest with ourselves, um, most of us will never have that kind of impact on that many people. There's these Billy Grahams in the world that just normal Christian people who go about their, their weeks day in and day out, they will not have that kind of impact. But don't let that discourage you. Because there is something to be said about the Simeons in the world. There's something to be about, said about the Simeons. The normal Christians that walk about their day week in, week out, being righteous and devout and in tune with the Holy Spirit. So if you are like Simeon, I encourage you, keep doing it well. Keep doing it well. Because you have no idea the type of impact that you are having on the people in your life that you touch on a daily basis because you're righteous and you're devout. 
and you're in tune with the Holy Spirit. You have no idea the type of impact that you have just being a Christian as God wants us to, by following Christ. Now, Simeon, we know about his spiritual condition. He was waiting. What was he waiting for? He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What's the consolation of Israel? If you look up the word consolation in uh, the dictionary, you would get a definition that sounds something like delivering peace and comfort um, from, a, from a group or a person who is in need of salvation. Delivering a peace and a comfort, a salvation. Basically, all this is saying is that Simeon was promised by the Holy Spirit that he would see the coming Messiah. He would see the coming Savior that God promised for centuries ago. He would see this. He's been promised this um, by the Holy Spirit. Now, how do we know? How do we know that Simeon was promised? Was it a vision? Was it audible? Did God actually speak to Simeon? Was it a little inkling in his heart? We don't know because it doesn't say it. And frankly, it's not important because he knew and he trusted that he would see the Savior, that God's word would come true in his life. I wonder if Simeon would sit up at night in eager anticipation for the day that he would see the consolation of Israel. If he'd sit up at night like a child sits up on Christmas Eve wondering what kind of presents are underneath the tree for them, did Simeon kind of sit up thinking, what is he gonna, what is he gonna look like? How am I, how am I gonna know it's him? I wonder what that day is gonna be like. It's gonna be a beautiful day, isn't it? The day I see that Savior. And so one day, Simeon is going about his very normal life. And he's prompted by the Holy Spirit to go into the temple. Now, no, this is very important to say that he was prompted by the Holy Spirit. What this tells us is that this meeting between Mary and Joseph and Jesus and Simeon was God-ordained. God wanted this meeting to happen, and so the Holy Spirit prompted Simeon to get up and go. Now, I don't, this could just be my own speculation. I don't think that Simeon knew that day that he was going to come face to face with the Savior. I don't think when the Holy Spirit prompted him to go into the temple, he said, today's the day. We got to get up. We got we to go. It's time. I'm going to see the consolation of Israel today. I, I, don't, I don't think that was the case. Once again, I could be wrong. That's my own interpretation, my own speculation. Um, but he listened. He listened to the Holy Spirit and he obeyed the Holy Spirit. He trusted and obeyed. Sometimes in our life, we have promptings by the Holy Spirit, and we don't know what's on the other side. But it's not our job to know what's on the other side. It's our job to trust and obey, just like Simeon did. How easy would it have been for Simeon to say, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to go today. No, the, the big game's on today. I'll go tomorrow. I can wait. I can wait. No, he listened and he went because he was obedient. We may believe in God and follow Jesus and live good, once again, normal Christian lives. But I think a lot of times, myself included, we put the Holy Spirit on mute. He's still active and he's still living and he's still moving. But we refuse to let him work in our life. And we just hit the mute button. Say, no, not today. Not today. Because we're so caught up in ourselves. I'm thankful that Simeon didn't 
put the Holy Spirit on mute that day. Because then this wonderful story would have never happened. So I can imagine. We don't know, once again, how it happened. But Simeon is walking through the temple courts. And he sees maybe Mary and Jesus and Joseph from afar. And he sees it. And he knows. He knows. And he, and he rushes over there. Take a moment and put yourself in Simeon's shoes. Imagine the joy that you would have from waiting your entire life of waiting for this, this Savior, this Messiah, to finally gaze upon his face. Put yourself in Simeon's shoes, the kind of joy that he would have. So he rushes over there. And he takes the baby. And for Simeon, it was one of those instances where he knew it when he saw it. He knew it when he saw it. There was no question in his mind, there was no doubt in his mind that this baby was it. He knew it. And I think that has everything to do with the fact that the Holy Spirit was on him. He was confident because he had the Holy Spirit. He was confident because he was so in tune. He was righteous and devout. It makes me think of, it makes me think of the story of John the Baptist. It reminds me, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin and a, a follower, a devout follower of Christ. And, and no doubt the Holy Spirit was with John the Baptist as well, but John the Baptist got to the point where he was sitting on death row and he sent his own disciples to Jesus to send one message and this message was it. He, he said, are you really the Savior? Are you really it? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that's to come? Sometimes, once again, in our life, we do that. We do that. We, we think, is this Jesus guy really who he says he is? Is, God, is God's word really true? Can I trust this? Can I trust, can I trust what he's saying? That wasn't the case with Simeon. He knew it. He knew it, and he was confident in it. And then he says some pretty remarkable things about this baby. What what does he say? Verse 29 through 32. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. He first takes the baby and he praises God. Why does he praise God? Because God's word came true. God came through on his promise. Have you ever met somebody who promises something and they come through? Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming through on your promise. Simeon praises God because God said something and it happened. He promised Simeon that he would see this Savior and he did. And Simeon basically says in verse 29 and 30, I can now die in peace. I can die in peace knowing what I've seen. I have seen salvation. I know that it's finished. He was a watcher. He was a watcher at his post. If you've ever planned a surprise birthday party, uh, generally what you do is you, you kick the person out who you're throwing the surprise for. You send them shopping or something. And then you prepare back home and you post a watcher, right? You send somebody to the front to kind of like peek through the, the, front door winter, uh, the, the front door window. And their whole job is to sit there and to wait and to watch for the guest of honor to come back. 
And then when the guest of honor comes back, they run and tell everybody and everybody hides and there's a surprise and everybody's happy and they start to party. Now the watcher no longer needs to return to his post because the event has taken place. The event has taken place and so he is no longer needed. It would be awkward if, if the person went back to the post and continued to watch for somebody that was already at the party. The same is true with Simeon. He no longer needs to watch because he has seen it. The event has taken place and he has found complete contentment in God's work and in God's word in his life. He's found complete contentment. He's saying, I can die in peace because of this, because of what God has done for us. I can die in peace. I am content. In the coming week, you may be one of like the 45% of people that makes a New Year's resolution. These are things that we do uh, to try to better ourselves. Um, areas that we're concerned with, I suppose. And according to the Journal of Clinical Psychology, the top five New Year's resolutions from 2014 was one, lose weight, two, get organized, three, spend less money, four, enjoy life to the fullest, whatever that means, five, stay healthy and fit. Uh, one commentator, just in reference to these type of New Year's resolutions, says, if our resolutions reflect our concerns and where we want to improve ourselves to have a sense of contentment, these preferences do not reflect high goals. Since we have set goals that have nothing to do with relationships or God, many of us find ourselves lonely and discontent. But just as Simeon had found complete contentment in God's word, we can find complete contentment in God's word as well. And we have it right now and we're studying it and it's fantastic. So he talks about this salvation. He actually goes on to describe this salvation. He describes it in three ways. The first one is that it was prepared by God. It was prepared by God, not us. It was God's work, it was God's doing that this salvation is attained, not us. And it was also prepared in the sight of all people. And this means that everyone will see this salvation. Don't get me wrong, not everybody will accept this salvation. Not everybody will follow Christ, but everybody one day will see this salvation. That's a promise. It's a promise that God prepared the salvation in the eyes of all people. Number two, it is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. To the, to the Gentiles? Once again, if you were to go back to Israel in this time, you were either, in the Israelites' eyes, you were either Jewish or you were Gentile. If you were of Israel, you were Jewish. And if you were of any other country, any other nation, you were Gentile. And so most of us that sit in this room, we would be considered Gentiles. This is very good news for us. Because notice the transition. Notice the change. It's talking about um, Simeon seeing uh, the consolation of Israel. That was a, a very Jewish phrase. They used that often. But now it's not just a peace and a comfort for Israel. It's a peace and a comfort also for the Gentiles. It's a peace and a comfort for everybody. This was a message of hope. It was a message of victory and vindication. And it was prepared to be available for everybody. 
No matter what nation you were from, no matter what kind of background you have, it was for everybody. And then finally, the third way he describes, he says, this, this baby, this will be the salvation, will bring glory to Israel. This will bring glory to Israel. Because he is out of Israel, it'll make Israel look really good. In a sense, uh, if we get celebrities or athletes, as long as they've upheld a good reputation that come out of Erie, uh, it would make Erie look really good, right? As long as they're like one of the good celebrities, I suppose. Um, it would bring glory to Erie. In the same way, because this Savior has come out of Israel, Israel gets glory because of it. And so Simeon says this, and of course we come to the parents' reaction in verse 33. How, how would you react? They marvel at this. I, I get excited when people call my son as cute, when, when, they, when they say my son is cute, because it's reassuring that I don't have an ugly kid, right? That's, that gets me excited. But this, this is different. Mary and Joseph are probably thinking, this kid is something special. First, the angels telling us that this was going to happen. And then when he was born, these shepherds show up and tell us this crazy story about these angels appearing. And now this random stranger is coming up and telling us that he's going to be the same. Wow, I've got a, I've got a good baby here. I've got a good kid. They're proud parents. Of course they're proud. You would be proud too. And so they're marveling at this. And then, and then the conversation takes an ominous turn. Perhaps Simeon saw the marvel that was just gushing from Mary's face. And then he handed the baby back to her after blessing it. And he said, Mary, there's, there's something else I need to tell you. There, there's something else you need to know. In order for this salvation to take place, something needs to happen. And this is what it is. And I just I want to warn you. I want to give you a fair warning. And this is what he says. What does he say? Verse 34 and 35. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, the child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many men will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The child is destined to cause the rising and falling of many. He's going to be the source of division. Jesus, as a baby, comes into the world and he grows into the man. And this man, is going because of his message, is going to divide all of mankind into two different people. Those who rise with him and those who fall against him. Simeon's talking about just Israel, how it will be the rising and falling of many in Israel. But we can take a step back and look at it from a broader uh, selection and say, no, this is, this is indeed the whole world. He is going to divide mankind into two different groups. And those who follow him are going to experience that peace and that comfort and that salvation that Simeon explained. And those who don't, are going to fall and experience separation from God. He says that he's also going to be a sign that will be spoken against. He's going to face opposition. People are going to hate him. People are going to hate his message. 
People are going to hate what he represents. He will be opposed. And Mary, that's going to bring you burden. The burden of a mother to see how much her son is opposed. He says, Mary, this is going to hurt you because he's going to be, he's going to be opposed. People aren't going to like him. Not even a year or two later, Joseph had a dream. And it said, go to Egypt because somebody is trying to kill your baby. I imagine when that happened, they had to think about Simeon. Wow, that guy was right. And it didn't take long. He's barely out of his diapers. He's not even walking yet. And people are already opposing this baby. Unbelievable. Do you want to test God's word today? Call up one of your relatives who don't believe in the Bible and don't believe in God and start talking to him about Jesus. You'll find real soon how many people oppose Christ. This probably is the reason why we don't want to tell our friends and we don't want to tell our family and we don't want to tell our co-workers about Christ because we face the opposition just being correlated with him. You know exactly what Simeon means. You say... You're right, Jesus did face opposition. And I've experienced that opposition. I get it. When my wife and I go to extended family for, for Thanksgiving or other, uh, other you know, holidays, we have, there's an unwritten rule. There's an unwritten rule that there's two things we don't talk about, and that's politics and religion. Because it causes so much division and opposition. And this keeps, us, this keeps us from telling people about Christ and inviting them to church because we're scared. We're scared of the opposition. It's something that we can relate to. Why is this so? Why is the name of Jesus so offensive to people? Why when you say Jesus in public or talk about Jesus in public or even hear about Jesus sitting here in your seats right now, do, do people just kind of like get really squirmy and they, and they tense up and they feel uncomfortable. A quick look at John 14 will give us some insight. In the passage, Jesus is explaining that he's going to be with his father. He's, essentially, he's saying, I, I am going to heaven and I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to, I'm going to, come, back and, I'm going to come back and get you. And Thomas, one of his followers, he says this, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Basically, Thomas is asking Jesus, hey, can you like jot down some directions for us? Because I would really like to, I would really like to go where you're going. I want to see your father. I want to be in that place. Jot down directions, plug it into my GPS or something, and we'll be set, right? And this is what Jesus says. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say he is a way. He says he is the way. And he's the only way. And nobody gets there except through him. If you want to experience peace and comfort that comes from salvation, you have to go through Christ to get it. And there's no other way. And that's offensive. Because it's not through your tradition. It's not through your parents' faith. It's not through your church attendance. It's not through your charitable contributions. It's not through your social status. It's not through your wealth. It's not through your legacy. It's through Christ. 
There was an older woman uh, that, uh, that was in a conversation with several of uh, family members and I several years ago. And we were talking about God and we were talking about heaven. And she says, she was bragging about her children. She said, my kids turned out really good. And I hope that God will look and see how good I did with my kids and that that would be enough to get me into heaven. If that's you today, let me just explain to you that it's not. God won't look at your children. God won't look at your parents. God won't look at your legacy. He won't look at any of those things. He will look at Christ and whether or not you followed him. Jesus Jesus is so offensive because essentially he forces our hand. He forces our hand. He forces us to make a decision. And he he says, you're either going to rise with me or you're going to fall against me. And if what Jesus says in his word is true, then I am not the center of the universe. He is. And our own pride hates that. Naturally, Every ounce of sin in our heart refuses to vacate the throne in our life. Every ounce of sin in my heart refuses to vacate the throne in my life. And that's why we oppose Christ. Because God sits on the throne, not us. But we want to sit on the throne. Naturally, there's some tension. If you don't vacate the throne in your life, you will fall. It's a promise in God's word. And how do we know that? Because God always comes through on his promises. God's word has been proven over and over and over again. God promised Simeon that he would see the consolation of Israel before he died, and Simeon saw the consolation of Israel before he died. God, in his word, said that there would be a baby born in Bethlehem to a virgin girl, and there was a baby born in Bethlehem to a virgin girl. God promised in his word that this baby would grow into a man and die on a cross and then rise again on the third day, and this baby became a man, died on a cross, and rose again three days later. And now we read in God's word that this baby will cause the rising and falling of many. And I would be willing to suggest that there is going to be and there has been the rising and falling of many. All because Jesus said you're either going to rise with me or fall against me. And it isn't until you make that conscious decision based on not how you feel but what you know to follow Christ, that you'll be saved. It is not that until that conscious decision to follow Christ, not based on how you feel, but what you know that you'll be saved. It isn't until you believe in your heart and proclaim with your mouth, say it with your mouth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. We've seen men's hearts revealed. They could be good-natured. They could be morally and ethically good people. But how do they feel towards Christ and towards God? What do they know towards Christ? 
Have they made the decision to follow Christ? If not, their hearts have been revealed, just as it says in God's word. I'll end with an illustration from one of my favorite movies. Um, it's a movie starring Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman called Hook. It came out in, I think, 1991. And the story goes, it asks the question, what if Peter Pan grew up? Because, you know, Peter Pan is the kid that never grows up, and he hangs out in Neverland with the, with the Lost Boys. And Hook, this movie, it's a great movie, and I highly recommend it. It's great for kids. Asks the question, what if Peter Pan grew up? What if he became an adult? And so in the movie, Peter Pan becomes an adult. He marries a nice lady. He has two kids. And all the while, he actually forgets that he's Peter Pan. He no longer lives in Neverland. He lives in London. Uh, He forgets that he's Peter Pan. Well, Captain Hook comes and kidnaps his children. And so he's got to go back and retrieve them. And so he journeys to Neverland with Tinkerbell, and he needs some convincing that he's Peter Pan. And so most of the movie is him trying to figure out who he is and that he actually is Peter Pan or whether he is or not. Um, In the meantime, there is another character named Rufio, and he is the leader of the Lost Boys in Peter Pan's absence. And so when Peter Pan comes back, You can imagine that Rufio doesn't really like this idea that Peter Pan is coming back and he's going to be the leader of the Lost Boys. And so near the end of the movie, there's a scene where Robin Williams, as Peter Pan, realizes that he's Peter Pan and he's standing before Rufio and he's standing before the Lost Boys and he draws his sword and he marks a line in the sand. And nothing is said, but everybody, when you're watching the movie, understands that what he just did is he's asking the lost boys, choose a side. Choose a side. Jesus has drawn a line in the sand and is saying, choose a side. And I hope you pick following me because I love you and I want to be with you. When Jesus said that he is the only way that you can have access to God, he's drawn a line in the sand. He's drawn a line in the sand. And so I have to ask you the question. Have you made a decision? Have you made a decision? An indecision is a decision. We have to choose based on what we know in God's word to follow Christ. And so I would encourage you, if you haven't made that decision, make that decision before you leave this building, before you leave the doors of this room. Because this is the most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life. And if you have questions or you need to talk to somebody about it, I would invite you to come down to the front after service, after our last song. Uh, There will be elders uh, down front, and myself included, that would love to talk to you about what that looks like, what a life with Christ looks like.